Hello, and thank you for listening to this week's audio message from First Baptist Church of Matawan. I'm recording this quick introduction to let you know that this past week we had some technical difficulties regarding the audio, and even though they did get resolved, the beginning part of this message may be a little difficult to listen to. Please bear with us, but if you need to fast forward, you may do so until minute four, where the audio issues were resolved. Thank you, and have a blessed day. All right, so page 940, Romans 3, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that together. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You can have a lot of tools in your toolbox, but none of them is going to be worth much if you don't have a light. You can be trying to fix your kitchen sink. You can have exactly the right wrench and everything that you need. But if you can't see in there, it's not going to do you much good. And I'll put it this way also. If you have a great flashlight and you never turn it on, it won't do you much good either. Here's what the Bible says about itself in Psalm 119.105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Guys, we need God's word, and we need not just to have it, but we need the light of it to come on for us. That's how God is effective in our lives. That's how God is effective to both Jew and Gentile, as we will see here today. This is what we need. We need the word of God to shed light on our souls so that we can then come to him in faith, so that we can walk in the paths of the Lord. We have come now to the third chapter of Romans, after just ten and a half months in Romans. And I am I might get through all four of the verses that I just read today. And if I don't, well, we've got next week, all right? But what it says here, what advantage has the Jew? This just reminds us of where we are in the Scriptures right now, that God has been saying, uh, all the way starting in Romans 1, verse 18, uh, and continuing now, he has been laying out a case here in Romans that every single human being needs to be saved by faith in Jesus. He's laying out a case that every single human being is born in sin and has no hope apart from coming to faith in Christ. That's the case for Gentiles, whether they are those who are, are nearby and hear the message of the gospel or whether they are far off on some island and have never heard before. He laid out the case that all are under sin and all are condemned apart from coming to faith in Christ. And it's now he says, what advantage has the Jew? Well, he, he, let's read the two verses that came before that, the last two verses of Romans chapter 2 so that we can see what is he talking about. Well, he just got done saying this, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit 
and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see, this was the big capstone of chapter 2. The big finale statement is saying, here is who is the actual people of God in the eyes of God, is that it doesn't come down to whether or not you have received this physical mark of circumcision, the mark of being part of the physical people of God, the physical descendants of Abraham, that it comes down to whether or not your heart has been changed. As Jesus put it, whether or not you have been born again, that there must be a circumcision of the heart so that ultimately on the day of judgment, nobody gets extra bonus points to get into heaven by having been born into the Jewish people or into any other people that they thought gave them an extra advantage. But on the day of judgment, it comes down to whether or not God had showed his proactive mercy to take away the heart of stone and to give a heart of flesh so that someone would look upon the Lord Jesus and believe and be saved. That Jesus who hung on the cross and died not only for the people but also for those who were scattered abroad, the people of God scattered abroad, both for Jews and Gentiles, to call together a people for himself. As he died, he paid for their sins. As he rose from the dead, he secured their eternal life and that's for all who will believe. And it's saying here, well, who are the real people of God for all eternity? It's not about Jew versus Gentile. It is about faith versus non-faith. As it's put in Galatians 3, 7, that it's those who are of faith who are the children of Abraham, the man of faith. Now, what Paul is about to say here starting in verse 1, of of chapter 3 is he is raising the potential objection. And this potential objection continues to get raised today. This objection says something like, well, if that's the case, if you are saying that the true Israel of God, as it's put in Galatians, as Paul puts it in Galatians, that the true Israel of God are those who are of faith, whether it is a Jewish person or a Gentile person, then why did any of God's work among the Jewish people in the Old Testament matter at all? This is the, the way that this gets brought up to me occasionally, usually by fellow pastors who disagree with me with some details about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and those sorts of things, they say, well, is this replacement theology? Do you believe in replacement theology? Do you believe that God has replaced his promises to the Jewish people, now with promises to the church? Do you believe that God has just wiped away all of his work with the Old Testament people, and now that he has replaced them with someone else? That's kind of the derogatory way that it's put across for what I think is the plain teaching of Romans 2 and of John 8 and of Matthew 3 and of the whole book of Galatians and a lot rest of, of, of the the scriptures, Romans 4, as we'll see. Well, the derogatory remark there is answered right here by Paul. He says, well, what is the advantage? Is, or, or, is, he's saying preemptively, are you saying, Paul, that all those things that God did for that people, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, all of those promises that God made to Abraham and to his children, is that just null and void now that Jesus has come? Does it not matter at all? 
Well, here's what he says. What is the value of circumcision or what is the advantage of the Jew? And I think both of those are essentially the same question. He's saying, what is the value of being part of that physical descendant of Abraham people, that people that the covenant was given to? What's the advantage? And he says this in verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And that takes us, if you're following along in the bulletin on the back, uh, on the outline, the priceless gift of Scripture. It is possible that I will only get to point one today, and I apologize in advance if that's the case. No, I don't apologize. I take it back. The priceless gift of Scripture. He says, what advantage, what value, he says, much in every way. Now, what he means there is that there are continuing to be, that there have been these advantages, these things where God's work among that ethnically Israelite, Abrahamic, Jewish people, that God's work among them really matters. And he lists several ways throughout Scripture and even throughout Romans, and he lists eight of those ways in Romans chapter 9. Let me read you those eight ways. He says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. That's six. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. That's eight reasons right there. He says, look, there is a lot of stuff. The way that God has worked through that people throughout the Old Testament and forward, it actually does matter. But what he says right here is that there is one of those ways in particular that is the chief of all of those things. All of the advantages of the Jewish people come down to one that is the great advantage, and it is this. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. When he says to begin with, it's possible that you might have a different English translation. Your English translation might say first or even uh, of, of most importance, something like that. Those, I think, would actually be better translations than we have here in the ESV in this verse. When he says, when he says to begin with, you'll notice that he doesn't have a list. He just has one thing. He's saying here is number one. Here is the top point. Here is the number one advantage. If you're not going to get across in your head any other advantage that was given to the Jewish people than this advantage, this is the one that matters the most. And that thing that matters the most is that they received the Bible, that they received the Old Testament scriptures. They received the oracles, he says, the oracles of God. He says here that that's, that's the first, that's the greatest advantage. It's the beginning, the number one. And you think about all of the advantages and all of the work that God had among the Jewish people throughout uh, what's recorded for us in the Old Testament, and it is remarkable what's there. You, you, you have a statement here in Romans 3.2 that the advantage of having the Scriptures is a greater advantage than the exodus from Egypt. Greater advantage than being brought out of oppression and slavery 
and brought through the Red Sea into the land of Sinai and ultimately into the promised land. It's a greater advantage than the great miracles that God did among them that they saw with their own eyes. It's a greater advantage than the conquest of the promised land and going into that land that was flowing with milk and honey. It's a greater advantage than the establishment of the kingdom of Israel with its capital at Jerusalem. It's a greater advantage than the building of the temple on Mount Zion. It's a greater advantage than having the line of David reign in Jerusalem from that throne. The greatest advantage, according to Romans 3.2, that God gave to the Jewish people was to be entrusted with the oracles of God, to be entrusted with God's word. Moses himself said things that were similar to this. Mike read from Deuteronomy 8 this morning, and he says also in Deuteronomy 5, he, he says this, for who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have, and has still lived. Oh, that's amazing. He's saying that there has been no other people, no other human flesh anywhere who have received the word of God as this people did. And if anyone else did, you would expect that they would die from it just to come in contact with the holiness of God in his word. And yet God has entrusted the very word that comes from his mouth in power, the word that shook Mount Sinai in the desert, the word where the whole people, even though they had been told not to come anywhere near the mountain, that when they heard God speaking, they didn't want to come anywhere near the mountain. They were terrified to hear the word of God and the Ten Commandments booming out like thunder and more than thunder from the top of that mountain. God entrusted these people with his oracles, with the word of God. I want to think through that for a little bit. What does that mean? Well, we have here, this is speaking of the scriptures, that's, that's what it means when he says the oracles of God is the scriptures. It's, as, as it's described elsewhere in the Bible, this is the law and the prophets, or the law and the prophets and the writings as it's sometimes said, or the Law of the Prophets and the Psalms. This is the 39 books of the Old Testament. Although they would have counted those books differently because they bound 13 of them all together, and you know you had First and Second Samuel counted as one book sometimes, and things like that, but it, it is the 39 books that we have as our Old Testament. That's what he's describing as the oracles of God. What he says here is that they are the oracles of God. I know, I just said that. But think about that, of God. We have a lot of sayings from other people, don't we? There is a lot of information that's out there. Some of it is not helpful at all. It's most of the internet, right? Some of what's out there is extremely helpful. And, and you can say to yourself, well, you know what? In, in my own profession, I, I know two or three people who I consider to be the foremost experts on what I do, whose, whose advice I trust, their sayings are trustworthy. Okay, well, maybe that's helpful, but think about the difference between the sayings of those helpful people and the sayings of God himself. 
maybe, maybe it's not a secular thing. Maybe it's not just something that would help you in business or something that would help you in organizing your life and self-help and those kinds of things. Though Those can be beneficial in various ways, but, but maybe it's even something having to do with those who are interpreting Scripture, which is a great thing. That's what I'm trying to do right now, right? But obviously, my words are not the words of God. I'm trying to point you to the words of God. I'm trying to open up the words of God. I'm trying to exposit, expose to you the words of God. And I think that's what every sermon ought to do, is to expose the word of God rather than just the word of man. But still, the word of man is not the word of God. We had, in, in Jesus' day, you have all of these, these Jewish teachers who were trying to, to apply the laws of the Old Testament to daily life, which is an admirable thing to do. But much of the way that they had, had gone about it was to take the sayings of past teachers and to enshrine those sayings of past teachers as though they were on the same level as the Word of God. Jesus pointed this out, and he, he said that it was uh, teaching as, uh, as doctrines the commandments of men. And so they would say things like, you can only go this many steps on the Sabbath day. You, you can only do this. You can only do that. You, you cannot make a, uh, a, a, a chicken sandwich with a slice of cheese on top because there is a commandment that says you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And all of these teachers who have come before us were so insistent that if we want to obey that, then we must never, ever mix any meat product with any dairy product. Well, that's not in the Word of God. But all of these sayings, they had come down as the sayings of the teachers, the sayings of the rabbis. Well, God had entrusted them with something better than that, the sayings of God the Word of God Himself. And God has given us today lots and lots of faithful teachers that we can go and look to. It's amazing what you can get now, just informationally. You can just do a Google search and pull up the entirety of the writings of Augustine of Hippo. And and you are never going to cease from finding great quotes from Augustine. You would keep on finding great quotes from others like Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon. And every week I, I pick out a quote to put in the bulletin, a quote from some teacher somewhere, usually someone dead. I think this week it's somebody alive. But do you know what? No matter how great those quotes might be, no matter how helpful they might be, the Word of God is so much more valuable. The word of man can fail, even if the quote deeply inspires you. The word of man can fail and be unreliable, be proven untrue. But the word of God is going to stand up. It's God's word. It is not man's word. And you know what it says about it? It calls the Bible here the oracles of God. It's not just an idea of what God said. It is God's oracles. Or another way to translate that would be his sayings, his words. It is the actual things that God has breathed out. Not just an idea. Here's what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture 
And remember, when he says that, he was primarily to, to Timothy, speaking of the Old Testament Scriptures, but it applies to the New Testament Scriptures also. But all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, sometimes when it says breathed out by God, that, that breathing out, it, it, that's where we get the word inspiration. And, and this is sometimes taken the wrong way, taken to mean, well, it, it, it's just kind of like God gave this swelled up warm feeling in somebody's heart. And then they just felt inspired to go and write something down. Or, or maybe, maybe God, God did mighty works. And then these men were inspired, even though they didn't really understand them, they were inspired to write them down however they understood them. And, and maybe as we sort through their errors, then we can get at the kernel of truth of what God actually did. No, that's not what it says. When it says that God breathed this out, it's described even more thoroughly in Second Peter. It says, no prophecy of Scripture by which it means any of the words of the Bible at all. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. These are the very words of God. Our Lord, in his teaching in this world, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said that every jot and tittle of the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Jesus was preaching there what we call the doctrine of inerrancy. He was teaching that down to the very letter that the word that God had given in its original language as God gave it was exactly from God to the point where every bit of it would be fulfilled. This is not a vague idea of truth where you kind of sort through this is good, this is bad, here is the kernel and here is the, the chaff. This is the entirety of it being the very oracles, the very word of God. And that's how we need to look at the Scriptures. That's how we need to open up our Bibles and say, this is not just words on a page. I'm going to open up my Bible, and I am going to actually receive the teaching of God as God has said it on purpose with his intention that I would receive not just these ideas, but these actual words for the benefit of my soul, for the building up of his church for his work in the world. Now, some of you would probably drift off into a liberal way of thinking about this. And when I say liberal, I am not talking about politics. I am talking about theological beliefs. And there is a liberal way of looking at the Bible in theological liberalism. If you want to know what I mean, there's a book nook book back there called uh, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Mason. It's written 100 years ago, and it applies just as much today as it did then. But that liberal way of thinking about the Bible would, would say something like, well, the Bible is good. The Bible gives us the ideas that we need. The Bible sets a good framework for us, but we don't actually have to believe it down to the details. It would say something like, well, I believe that the Bible is speaking accurately to the spiritual things that it says, 
but then maybe when it bumps up against scientific understandings of the world, well, then that was just ancient people not getting it. And we can kind of separate out that ancient way of thinking from the continuing spiritual truths. Or, or maybe even to the point where you would say, well, I, I don't know if I'm so much on the, the same page as Paul. I, I like the red letters of Jesus better. As though the word of God were separated out into red and black. Which I know some of your Bibles are printed that way and I kind of wish they weren't. Because every bit of it is the word of God. But guys, we say this sometimes, and we sometimes think about those who are off over there in those liberal institutions and liberal churches. And do you know what happens in those liberal churches? Within a couple generations, usually everybody just dies. Okay? I know that can happen in a conservative church too, but that, that's what's happening in liberal denominations is that people are seeing there's not that much difference between what they believe here and what the world believes, so why do I need to come to church at all? It dies out, and yet, even after hundreds of years, thousands of years, there keeps on rising up new generations of those who look at the Bible from that skeptical point of view with a fondness and a skepticism that's mixed together. And do you know how that happens? We think of that as off there, but it happens in here. It happens in the hearts of people who are sitting in the pews of Bible-believing churches and yet in their own hearts refuse to believe the very oracles of God with which we have been entrusted. People who, who are raised up in churches just like this one, who would say to themselves, I love the feeling of community. I love the songs that we sing. I love the idea of the institution of the church. I love what the church can do for the community. But when it gets down to Noah's flood, I don't think so. And you keep on getting more and more heretics. Guys, every bit of the word of God proves true. And God's word does not need you. Did you know that you, the Bible says about you that you are like grass. And the grass fades and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. I, I mentioned Noah's flood and that's what we looked at in Sunday school this morning and got to sit under a great lesson about that from Evan. And, uh, and, and as we look at that, I had the thought crossing my mind, you know, the things that we're, we're reading here, they seem strange to us. Why would they not seem strange to people in Noah's day? Why would they not seem strange to people in Moses' day? Well, they absolutely did. Those things have always seemed strange to people throughout the ages. The idea that God would do something that we have never seen and cannot imagine how it would happen for the entire earth to be flooded. And, and as I'm saying, the oracles of God, I need to read you some of the actual words that are there. Uh, listen to what it says in, in Genesis uh, chapter 7, verse 19. It says, The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. You know what that rules out? It rules out the idea that it just happened to be this big flood in one place that, ever, that really scared everybody and killed a lot of people. It is saying in the very words, in the very oracles of God, 
as Paul describes them. The water went up over every mountain, the whole earth. And the reason I'm dwelling on this is because I want you to trust in what God's Word says. I want you to see what the Bible says, and I want you to believe it. I want you to affirm it. And when you have something in your heart where you start to think to yourself, I'm not quite sure about that, I want you to have the gut reaction to say, but this is the oracles of God. This is not the word of man. This is not something that is fallible. This is not something for me to sit in judgment over. This will stand when I'm dead. And this is going to continue to build God's church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to build his, his, he's going to do his work by his word. And I want you to have a knee-jerk reaction to the scriptures to submit to them instead of questioning them. We need to put ourselves under the very words of God because they are the words of God and not the words of man. And what does he say about this or these oracles of God? What was the advantage to the Jew in them? Well, the advantage to the Jewish people is this. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. Entrusted. That is a huge advantage to have the Bible itself given to a people. It is a great advantage in comparison to every other people in the world. There was no other people across the face of the earth as God had spread these nations across the world all the way from Genesis 10 with these table of 70 nations that spread across the world after the flood all the way forward. God had not given his word to any other nation. That is a massive advantage. And if we think to ourselves, well, it doesn't matter whether somebody was ever a part of the Jewish people or not because the true Israel of God is those who believe. Well, that, it's true. The true Israel of God is those who believe. And here is a massive advantage, entrusted with the Scriptures, entrusted with the oracles of God. There is, in the Bible, the opportunity to be saved. Romans chapter 1, as he has spoken, starting in verse 18, I mentioned earlier, says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is a truth that is available to all mankind. The truth of what's what we call general revelation, of what's available to see for everybody in the world. You can see a sunset, and it ought to be obvious to everybody. God is the creator. We ought to submit to him. But it says here that the natural course of mankind is not to submit to God from those truths, but to rebel against him. What can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. But then it says that instead, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. You cannot be saved by general revelation. You cannot be saved by the glory of God declared in the sky, in the heavens. What can save you is the specific word of God about the Son of God that awakens our hearts, as he already said in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now you would say, well, the gospel, the gospel is the New Testament. 
Why would it be an advantage to the Jewish people to have the Old Testament? Well, you misunderstand the Old Testament if you say that. He already said in Romans, he said, he said back in Romans 1, verse 2, that this gospel of God was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This, this Old Testament Scripture that was entrusted to the Jewish people, it was fully enough for them to believe and be saved. It was fully enough for them to recognize that Jesus is the Christ who is described there. It was absolutely fully enough. And I'll save until we get to verse 3 to talk about why is it that so many didn't believe if they had this. And that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't affect the, the, the very power of the Word of God, the nature of the Word of God to which they had been entrusted. But here's what it says about Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3.15. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you, do you hear what he just said about the Old Testament? He said, Timothy, here is the advantage that you have growing up as a Jewish boy in a Jewish home with a mother and a grandmother who are teaching you the Jewish scriptures. He says, you have the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is a massive advantage to have an entire people who have been entrusted with the word of God that's able to make someone wise for salvation, to point them to Jesus Christ. But being entrusted with the word of God, it also has responsibilities. Not just advantages, but what you must do. To be entrusted with something. Just think about that word. You say, I am going to entrust you with this. It doesn't just mean here's something, here's a toy to play with. Here's something to just enjoy. It's you need to do something with this. Jesus told this in the, the parable of the talents, as it's called. Talent there meaning uh, an amount of money. That this master left uh, a certain amount of money with different servants in his household and that he expected them to do something with it. And so when, he, when the master came back, there was, there was the servant who said, look, your, your ten talents have made ten talents more. And then there was the servant who said, your five talents had made five talents more. But then there was the servant who said, I went and buried the money in the ground, and here it is for you, because I know you're really mean and you'd be mad if I lost some of it. That's my paraphrase. What happened to that guy? He was thrown out. He didn't take what had been left with him as a stewardship and steward it. He was entrusted with it, but he didn't do anything with it. To be entrusted with the oracles of God is not only to have it, to enjoy it, but also to be given a stewardship with it, to do something with it. First of all, to believe it and to, to come to faith in the one that it speaks of, but also to pass it down, to teach it to others, to spread it, to do, I guess, what you would call missions. But here's what Paul says about this, about this responsibility that he himself has as someone who stewards the word of God. He says in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I am still entrusted with a stewardship. You hear that? 
If you have the gospel, you have been entrusted with a stewardship. That doesn't mean that you are going to be in the same position as Paul of going as an apostle, an evangelist from town to town, but it does mean you have a stewardship with that gospel. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. We have it, and we're called to pass it along. I want you to think about just how priceless it is for us to have these Bibles. We, we think about the, the Jewish people, and, and what it's speaking of here is, is that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, and it's remarkable how God preserved his word through the Jewish people throughout the ages. And, and I, I prayed a little bit just thanking God for this, even as we, we prayed from Psalm 78 earlier. But just amazing that, that God, he preserved his word, first of all, by, by his own people passing it along in a memorized state spoken to each other. And then passed it along where, where they could know, for example, as they were slaves in Egypt, they could know the stories of Abraham, their forefather. And then God gave it in this solidified written form on Mount Sinai to Moses. And then the people passed it down from generation to generation. God continued to give more of his word, more of his oracles through his prophets so that you end up with all 39 books of the Bible. And there were times in the, the history of the Jewish people that it was almost lost. There were times when they were not stewarding it very well. And they would go for, for generations without anybody looking at it. And then somebody would go. This happens multiple times uh, in, in the Old Testament where somebody goes through and finds the old dusty copy of the law of Moses in the middle of the rundown temple and brings it out, blows the dust off of it, picks the stuck-together pages apart, and reads it to the king and says, I found the word of God. And oh, what an amazing thing happens in that. Revival comes, and they keep on preserving the word of God, and it's passed down, and it's passed down, and it's passed down. And then we come to the New Testament, and God completes his written revelation, completes the oracles of God in written form for us through sending Christ and sending the apostles uh, and their followers who would record these teachings of Christ from Matthew through, uh, through Revelation. And then it keeps on getting passed down. But you know what? Even the, the fact that we have these English Bibles sitting around us, it's so remarkable. We can't take this for granted. I don't know if you've ever heard of William Tyndale. William Tyndale was an Englishman who lived at the, the time of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And as books were starting to be printed on printing presses, and as the, the teachings of Martin Luther had started to get printed and others reformers and the Protestant Reformation was taking hold in Europe, well, it hadn't quite come to England yet. But William Tyndale had this conviction that the people needed the Word of God and they needed to be able to read it. And it was forbidden for the people to be able to read the Word of God. It was only supposed to be in Latin, and it was only supposed to be for the priests. But he was determined to translate and to print the Bible. And he did it with the full New Testament. He did it with a few books of the Old Testament before he was ultimately killed. And his goal, William Tyndale's goal, he said, was that the boy who drove the plow in the fields 
would know more Scripture than the Pope. Which, if you got the Bible into the hands of a boy in the field at that time, was pretty likely to happen. And he would go into Germany and other parts of mainland Europe, and he would translate, and he would get these Bibles printed, which were illegal in England. And he would smuggle them back to England underneath crates of merchants' stuff. And when they would get found, there would be these public burnings of Tyndale's New Testaments, which by God's grace just made them catch on more. More and more people wanted them. I've heard that that used to happen whenever somebody advertised that their book was banned in Boston. And by God's grace, the Bible kept on going out, but eventually Tyndale was caught. He was sentenced to death. And as he was being burned at the stake, his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And it wasn't very many years after that, about a decade later, that God, through a very, very, you know, if you know the story, you know it's a convoluted story, but God in his providence brought the Reformation to England. And the king authorized the printing of an English Bible to be distributed to the people. It's just amazing. I mean, the fact that we have this is not something to take for granted. That's what I'm getting across to you. Much blood has been spilled so that you could possess the oracles of God. And would we then treat it like dirt? Would we treat it like any other book? Or maybe as we know that it's not like any other book, would we just let it gather dust? To be entrusted with the oracles of God was a very special thing for the Jewish people, and it is a very special thing for you and me. And I think that there is no way in which we can look at our modern situation and say to ourselves, oh, only the Jews have been entrusted with the oracles of God. Guys, we have piles of Bibles sitting around you right now, and I've told you already today, if you don't have one, take one of these. Get it out there. You you want it. Some of you have piles of Bibles sitting at home. And some of those piles of Bibles don't have a single one in them that's been opened all week. And how can we take this for granted? It's not just the piles of paper Bibles around us either. We, we have just an embarrassment of riches. I can get out, m- most of you have a smartphone in your pocket probably right now. And I can get out my phone anytime and open one app and have instant access to the entirety of the original Greek and Hebrew and hundreds of English translations, and so many resources. It's just all right there. It's just all right there. And yet, would we say, but I don't have time. I don't have time. Guys, you need to treasure your Bible. The possession of the oracles of God is something worth treasuring. It is something worth treasuring. There's all kinds of things in your life that are going to demand attention. I I think the number one reason that Christians give for why they don't spend more time is the Bible is because they are too busy. And and I I mean, I certainly get that, and I I relate to that, and, and I've used that excuse myself, and we all have, I think. And, I mean, I'm, I'm the only pastor of this church. We want some other elders raised up. There's a lot to do here. I've got five kids at home. There, there's a lot to do. 
But guys, we have time. We really do. Do do you have time to eat lunch? You know what Jesus said? That it is more important that we receive the words of God. That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? He, Jesus himself, he valued the Bible and he valued prayer to the point where he would, he would go all night without sleep. Do you sleep? It, it, it's okay to get up a little earlier and maybe you're worried, well, I'll just be too tired. God will take care of you. I want to know also, you who, who, who would say that you don't have time to spend in the scriptures, how much time do you spend on the news? How much time do you spend watching shows on TV or on some streaming service? How much time do you spend scrolling through social media, just thinking maybe this next post will tickle my fancy? How many likes will I get? We have time for the Word of God. And when we don't give it the full attention that it deserves, there's a heart problem for us. It's not a busyness problem. It's a heart problem. To be entrusted with the oracles of God is so much more significant, such a greater advantage than anything else that you have that would demand your time and attention. Guys, you need to treasure your Bible. You need to feed on your Bible. You need to take advantage of your Bible. You need to steward your Bible. And when we take our, our attention away from the Word of God, when we let it sitting there, sit there gathering dust, the way that that's described in Amos 8 is a famine. Nobody would voluntarily live through a famine unless it's a famine of the Word of God. Here's what it says in Amos 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to south. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That's presented there as a curse from God. Why would we just do it? Why would we just enter into a famine of the Word of God? And guys, we need to treasure the words themselves. We need to treasure the words themselves. I, I, I have been really encouraged in this church by, by the, um, the amount of sermons that so many of our members listen to outside of church, uh, that there are, there are so many faithful Bible preachers who are out there where you can just get their sermons on sermonaudio.com or even on YouTube or uh, various places. There's just great, great preachers out there. But I want to know this. Are you just taking in their sermons or are you actually devoting your own time to read and absorb and meditate on and memorize the actual words of God? The oracles of God. You need this. You need this. You may think to yourself, I will get a quicker spiritual adrenaline hit, dopamine hit, from a great Vodibachum sermon, 
which absolutely, if you don't know who Vody Bakum is, go listen to his sermons, okay? <laughs> go look him up. But you may think to yourself, I will get a greater dopamine spiritual hit from that sermon than I will from the drudgery of taking 30 minutes to memorize three verses of the Bible. Well, it might be true that you'll get a quicker dopamine hit from the sermon, but you will reap spiritual fruit and benefit for years to come by having those actual words of God hidden away in your heart. We we need this. We need this. You need the Word of God, not just the ideas, not just great sermons about it. You need the very oracles of God. And I want you to consider this also. How do we take this as a stewardship? We have been entrusted with the oracles of God. It's an advantage to us. It's an advantage to us because, uh, well, because we, we have taken it and believed it. What have we believed? Well, we have believed what it says about Jesus being the Christ. The whole thing is about Jesus who is the Christ. We, we see here in these verses, this passage, or I guess I should say this section of Romans, is showing us the depth of our sin, but it's showing us the depth of our sin so that it can show us the beauty of Christ. And that's what the Scripture is always going to do. It's going to show us not just the law that condemns us rightly, but also the gospel where God graciously saves us through the blood of Jesus. This is going to show you, you're going to have the advantage to look to Christ on a continuing basis and trust in him alone for your salvation. And if you don't right now, do that. That is the message of the Bible. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's the message if you're going to boil it down. But we need to steward that also. If you are... Um, if you want to be one who would tell people the gospel, who would tell people the message of Christ, you need the word of God in your heart. If you're not one who would tell people the gospel, then I'm going to guess you're probably not spending much time in the Bible. And I say that partly just based on my own experience. You know when I am most excited about telling people the gospel? It's when I am most personally invested into the scriptures themselves. That's when I get most excited about Christ. That's when I get most excited about telling others about Christ. But as you, as you go into it, you, you need to steward it. You need to memorize some Bible verses that you will have on hand when you don't have a gospel tract to hand to somebody. Or I, I guess even if you do have a gospel tract to hand to somebody, because a personal conversation is more meaningful. You, you need to memorize verses like John 3.16, which if you don't have it memorized, you should be embarrassed about that. You, you need to memorize verses like Romans 3.23 and Romans 5.8 and Romans 6.23 and Romans 10.9. Those verses comprise what's sometimes called the Roman road of salvation. Just great verses to have memorized, to tell somebody about their need of Christ and the beauty of Christ and the, the salvation through faith in Jesus. You need to steward it for evangelism. You need to steward the Word of God for counseling. And I'm talking about when you counsel others, which you do. Anytime that somebody comes to you and asks your advice, you are a counselor. 
Anytime that you are having an intentionally helpful conversation with someone, you are doing counseling. And I want to encourage you as a believer to do what we call biblical counseling, where you're not just giving good advice based on what you've seen out there, just based on what you've done and what's helped you, but actually giving the Word of God to people with the conviction that the Scripture is going to be living and active in their lives. When somebody comes and asks you for help, start praying immediately, God, what passage of the Bible can I read to this person? that has to do with their situation, that is going to help them more than whatever advice that I could have come out of my life. Steward the Bible in your counseling and steward the Bible, parents, steward the Bible in your parenting. This is huge. I I, I want you to, guys, maybe write that down, maybe underline that like five times right now. Steward the Bible in your parenting. Think about what's happening here. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. How did those oracles of God get from generation to generation? It was that they were passed down intentionally, even by many who didn't believe them. (laughs) And how much more important is is it for us who know the Savior who is represented in these scriptures, to pass down those scriptures. I read you earlier from, first, or excuse me, from 2 Timothy how, how Paul said that the scriptures were able to make Timothy wise unto salvation. Do you know how that happened in his childhood? How did the scriptures make Timothy wise for salvation in his childhood? Well, it's this way. 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says to Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. You hear that? There was a grandmother who taught it to the mother, who taught it to the son. This is how the scriptures are, are so often passed down. You may say to yourself, well, what advantage, what, what advantage do my children have? You know, my, we don't believe, as, as some other Christian traditions do, we don't believe that infants are to be baptized and brought into membership and declared to be a part of the covenant people. We wait until they actually believe and are walking out their Christian faith to do that. And some would look at that and say, well, then there is, you're, you're saying, you Baptists are saying that there is no advantage that your children might as well just be in pagan houses, that they are on the outside. Well, do you know what the advantage is? Paul says, here's the chief advantage of those who were born into the Jewish people. It's not circumcision. It's not being counted a part of this ethnic people. It is the stewardship of the Word of God to them. Parents, your children have a massive spiritual advantage, and that is that they have parents who know the Bible and will read them the Bible who will set up fathers, fathers, take the responsibility right now, if this does not happen regularly, daily in your household, take the responsibility to set up a daily devotional time where you read the actual Bible. And even if you don't understand what you just read, you read it anyway and you pray together. And I'm not just talking about reading your kids' Bible stories because the Bible stories leave out great stuff like, like David chopping off Goliath's head. I'm talking about the actual words of the Bible and give them to your children and point them to Christ. And you know what? There is great advantage, great advantage. This is the ordinary means of grace that God uses to save people. And we give these oracles of God to our children, knowing that we have been entrusted with them as a stewardship.
Now, if you have sat through this sermon today, you have been entrusted with a stewardship right now. You, you have been told, here is the Word of God, here is the message of God, it is life-giving, and you need that light to come on in your heart. It is possible to sit under the teaching of God, the teaching of the Word of God, I guess I should say, and never believe it. Here's the call, believe it. Believe it by turning to the Savior that it's all about, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have this tool, but it will be of no advantage to you unless the light is turned on. Turn to the Lord Jesus and believe, and you will be saved. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have entrusted us with the oracles of God. I thank you that you did that through the Jewish people, that you preserved your word, that you gave them so many advantages, that you sent the Lord Jesus, God in the flesh, our Savior, through that people. And God, I thank you that you have now entrusted us, sitting right here with this pile of Bibles around us, you have entrusted us with the very words that you have breathed out, the oracles of God. I pray that you would give us the grace to believe what it says, in particular, to believe upon the Savior that it's all about. And God, I pray also that you'd help us to take in and to treasure the very words of God down to the very details. I pray that you'd help us to steward those in our evangelism, in our conversations, in our parenting, and in every other way that you, you have put into our lives. God, I pray that you would prevent the people who are sitting here right now from falling into the temptation to heresy and theological liberalism that would sit us in judgment over the oracles of God. God, give us the grace to, to have humility, to submit, to believe, and to walk according to what you have said in this beautiful treasure of the Bible. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.